All right, go ahead and turn to John 17, and um, we're going to look at that chapter. I'm going to read through it in a minute. John 17, and uh, let's just start by, by praying. Our Father in heaven, we ask and pray that your Spirit would help us to, to see the words that you gave your Son, the words that you, you gave to us. Um, grant us understanding, grant us application, grant us comfort where comfort needs to be had, and provocation where provocation needs to be had. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus' high priestly prayer, uh, the prayer of consecration is what I'm calling it, a prayer of holiness. And uh, you'll see what I mean when we go through this. But I just want to read and then make some comments. Just a reminder, Jesus is with his disciples. And uh, whether or not they're um, at the Garden of Gethsemane at this point or not, I mean, there's debate. It really doesn't matter at this point. But um, the point is, is that Jesus ends his final sermons with the disciples. He ends it with a prayer. And it is a prayer that is a great model for us in understanding several different things. So let's just read through it. Again, I'll make comments as we go, and then we'll pull out some some points of of, uh, consideration. Jesus spoke these things and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said... Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Remember, the hour is his death. That's, everything's been building up to that point. The hour that is coming for Jesus is the hour that he is lifted up like the bronze serpent in the wilderness, and every, all men will look, at, look upon him. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, note that Jesus is given all authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you had given me to do. Jesus gives glory to the Father in his day-to-day activities, in his miracles, his teaching, everything. Verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus had glory. He emptied himself. He's getting back that glory by his obedience. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. He's talking of his disciples now. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to me that everything you have given me is from you. Now they have come to know, rather. So they they understand. The disciples have confessed that in the previous chapter. They know that Jesus is from the Father. There's something special that Jesus has with his relationship with with God. Verse 8. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. There are words that the Father gave to Jesus. Jesus passed them on. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You belong to Jesus. They are, you belong to the Father. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, notice his prayer there. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. John read from Exodus the name of God, we're going to focus on that, the name of God is given to Jesus. 
this whole debate on whether you know Jesus is fully divine or not, like it doesn't get any more clearer than this. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Judas uh, perished. And we as Reformed people acknowledge readily that um, Judas freely chose to abandon God, and God sovereignly ordained it. (laughs) So that's not a contradiction, it's just what the Bible teaches. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have joy, they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus, um, do a Bible study on your own if you want. Go back in the book of John, pull up like a Bible app or something, and look at how many times joy pops up. He's talked about it over and over, right? Abide in me in John 15. Why? So that your joy may be full. It's just an interesting thing. You, should, you could do that on your own. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Their origin, their authority, their, re, their, um, their power, they have been reborn. And that issue of authority is going to come back when Jesus is confronted with Pilate. And Jesus makes it plain that, look, the only authority you possess is what God has given you. And, and, and that's on a short leash. <laughs> so you can take my life, but know that I'm giving it. You're not taking it. He had, Jesus has true authority. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. This debunks the rapture, by the way, in one verse. But to keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out of the world. Keep them from the evil one. The, the whole point of being regenerate is so that you and I can be in the world as regenerate people, not whisked away because we just don't want to do anything hard here. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. They have been reborn. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Van Til spends a lot of time discussing this verse, mostly because he, Jesus says, your word, it, he doesn't say your word is a type of truth or your word, he doesn't even qualify it, is the truth. It is truth. It, God's word The words he speaks, the Son of God, all of that wrapped up in the Holy Bible you have in your lap, all of those things together constitute truth, the foundation of all knowledge, the foundation of all truth. He says to sanctify them. There's that consecration idea. Sanctify them in truth. Which also means that you can't be sanctified on your own whim. (laughs) You have to be sanctified by truth. And sometimes that's painful. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Again, we're sent by Christ into the world because Christ was sent into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. Interesting language, we'll come back to that. Jesus sanctifies himself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Your sanctification, your holiness, your consecration, your set-apartness is rooted in Jesus being set apart which is tied to vocation, purpose, those things. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our prior conversation, uh, John, about um, gender roles and all this confusion and patriarchy and some of these hot topic issues This verse alone gives clarity on those issues. We're supposed to be one, 
But does oneness mean complete and utter uniformity? Does the gospel obliterate the fact that a man is a man and a woman is a woman? No. It establishes it. And why? Because there's unity in the Trinity and there's diversity in the Trinity. There is oneness in being, that we call it ontology, and there's also distinction, economy, how the Trinity um, works itself out. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, um, contrary to the one essence Pentecostalism that we even have now in our own backyard. So, and not your backyard here, Aaron, there's no heretics running. <laughs> but in Warrington, um, so that we know of, yeah. <laughs> So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Our unity is only as good as we understand the unity of the Godhead. And that doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean distinctions are erased. It doesn't mean um, that there's no um, unity and uh, you know, diversity are not at odds, in other words. <clears throat> I in them, verse 23, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, interesting that he says that. He's already said Holy Father, and now he says Righteous Father. Although the world has not known you, Yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus, he created a community for God's glory, and now he puts this community before God in prayer. It is a fascinating thing to think about that Jesus prays for us, that he prays for us. 2,000 years later, you, you, all of us were in the mind of God. So central, central to Christ's prayer is the fact and the concern that the name of the Father is to be extended and made known in the world. That's part of his prayer, the central focus of his prayer. Jesus has come into the world which has abandoned God, the world that God created, and the, world, the created world, though, has sought its own way. It has fallen under hostile powers, rebellious powers, both satanic and demonic and human rebellion as well. And now, because of those rebellious things, corruption has set in. Decay has set in in the world. Which means, though, that Jesus, in his gospel, comes and deals with this predicament. The grand scope of the gospel is to undo everything that sin has touched, far as the curse is found. So he has come to put an end to the power of Satan, sin, darkness, and death. But in order to do that, logically, it had to come to a point where death had to be exhausted. Death had to have its final day in court. Death had to um, sort of have its midlife crisis where it just had its last you know, night of hurrah before the end, before it's doomed. And we know when that happened, it was the hour with Jesus is going to, the, the cross of Christ. So death had to take the life of the one who is life in order to be swallowed up in resurrection victory. Uh, I think it was John Owen, right? The death of death and the death of Christ. That play on words. It's that idea. Death had to be extinguished, but the only way it could be extinguished is if it was laid fully bare and allowed to do the most despicable thing, and that is take the life of the one who is life. So here's Jesus. 
He prays for unity, but it's not the kind of unity, though, that the world knows. The only unity the world knows is unity in rebellion, unity in collectivism, unity in uniformity. That's what the world knows. But unity is what Christ wants from his people. But it's a unity that serves a purpose. It's not so we can just feel good about ourselves. Oh, we're unified, yay. Which tends to be a marketing scheme for most churches today. Um, we just sort of, you know, do our thing. We're unified. Why? Well, because we all showed up and the fog machine was great and the lights and the lasers and it was awesome. And we felt good about ourselves for, you know, 30 minutes or less. But unity is, is not for that. Unity is for the task of worldwide conquest. That's kind of what we touched on last week. But it's a qualified unity. It's a qualified unity. It's not an ambiguous unity. It's not unity for the sake of things like false peace. It's not unity for the sake of a greater um, utilitarian good, right? My father-in-law and I were talking this weekend, and some of the uh, taglines for the Democratic uh, po- uh, people who are running for president, they're, they're saying, well, we need, so- like, Trump divides people, so we need to unify people. We need a candidate who unifies people. And we're over here saying, we don't, we don't need to be yoked with evil, <laughs> but that's on both sides here. We're, we're choosing the third way, the way of light. We don't need a false unity where we get along and cuddle up with socialism. in <laughs> all varieties, by the way, the whole spectrum. So unity is not the goal. Um, not if it means sacrificing principles, sacrificing and compromising you know, ethics or things like that. And that's because unity is, is ethical. It requires that we be holy. And holiness, holiness requires consecration. Holiness requires that we be actually holy, set apart. And consecration for us as Christians, um, that only happens if it's given to us, right? It's only, it only can happen if it's given to us. We are all a mess. We're sometimes headlong in sin. We can't be set apart unto God in and of ourselves. You don't just magically wave a wand and suddenly you are set apart. What we need and what you and I need is the atonement. That's, the, that's what gives you the set-apartness. You and I need our sins forgiven, and we need to be brought into a new relationship with the covenant God. So, in order for the name of God to be carried forth into this worldwide promised land, God needed to sanctify people. He needed to sanctify his people, and the only way to do that was to send his son, his son to be the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice. Now, go back with me sort of in remember your Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the God whose name is I Am, right? He chose Israel to bear his name, to take on the yoke of his name. That's his full authority, his righteousness, his justice. All of the things that are true of God were to be true of the people of God, the Israelites. So they were to bear his holy and righteous and perfect name, but they were to do it among the nations. God put his name on them, his stamp on them, his authority he had given to them, his power. Um, They were to do all these things for God. And then he told his people in Leviticus 11.44, he says to consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. See, holiness is you simply acknowledging that you are holy and aligning those truths. 
You've been consecrated, so act like it. Be holy. <laughs> it's not, oh, do good things and then think that that somehow makes you good. It's not that at all. It's recognizing that Christ died for you, your sins are atoned for, know that you are set apart, and act like you're set apart. <coughs> so Israel, they had the world-shaking task of proclaiming the holiness of God in all the earth. And here we have Jesus calling his Father holy. He's the Holy Father. And he's saying this as he's reconstituting another Israel for the very same purpose. A lot of people think, you know, Israel, they were supposed to just worship God in the temple, and then Jesus decided, well, that didn't work. The Old Testament law, all that stuff didn't work. So now I'm just going to send people into the world as missionaries and evangelists. Being a missionary and evangelist is not a New Testament doctrine. It's a God-given doctrine from the very beginning. That's what the Dominion Covenant was. We're all, Adam was supposed to be an evangelist. He was supposed to have covenant children to, to, to teach them God's word, and they were to, to follow him. So the church now, that's us, we are called to bear the name, for the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and what do the righteous do? We run into it. We run into the, to the strong tower. That's Proverbs 18.10. So in order to keep God's name, we must be holy. They must be holy. They must be set apart. We must be set apart. And to be set apart is to be holy and utterly committed. Listen, because we miss this up a lot, I think. To be holy, to be set apart, is to be holy, that's with a W, <laughs> holy and utterly committed in every aspect of life to God and His purposes. Okay? You, and because God is one, we are called to unity, the same unity that we find in the Trinity. Which means for us, holiness isn't an option, it's a priority. It's not an option, it's a priority. And this holiness, this separation unto God for His purposes, is actually something that's going to be under constant threat. But lest you mistake what I'm saying, <laughs> it doesn't mean withdrawal from the world, which is exactly what Jesus prays against. We like to think of it in terms of space. Like he said, you know, I ask not that you take them out of the world. And we think of like the rapture doctrine or um, even like resurrection doctrine or you know, those things. He's actually not talking about the world in the physical sense, but more in the general ethical sense. Your task is not to be taken out of the place where your primary responsibility is to be had. Amen. Don't take them out of the very thing I put them in and set them apart for, for the purpose of gospel proclamation and work and in all these areas of life. So it doesn't mean withdrawal from the world. I look at our Sunday gathering. I was thinking about this this morning. I, this is more like a, a team huddle where we, you know, we're, we're energized towards God and His Word, and we sing, and there's fellowship, and then and then we leave and we put on our sword and we walk out into the world. I, it's kind of that idea of we are laboring Sunday through Saturday in the world for God's glory, and this is an opportunity for us to just spend some time focusing on that and remembering that and remembering God's covenant and being hopefully challenged and considering things for the week. So it doesn't mean retreat. It means doing work in the world, knowing that it's not going to be nice and neat. It'll be messy. It'll be disheveled. Monday's going to roll around, moms, and you have to figure out what your meal plan is for the week. <laughs> and that never ends. <laughs> um, 
and dads, you get to help and you get to serve and you, you know, and all of us have a responsibility at our jobs. We, we, Monday comes. So it's not going to be neat. It's going to be disheveled. Things are going to happen. Relationships, business endeavors, personal righteousness will be tangled. It will be gnarly. Holiness in the world should incur some bruises. See, if there are no bruises, I would argue it's not holiness, it's pietism. Because holiness isn't retreatism. Holiness is in your faceism. It's going to the pride parade. It's writing an article. It's engaging family members. It's discipling your children. It's all of life, and it's going to have bruises. But what has Jesus already told us? He said, take courage, I have overcome the world. Unity and holiness in the church will be threatened by evil, but Jesus has already bound the strong man, he has plundered his goods, he has led the captives free, and he has marched all of that right in front of Satan, sin, and death, loudly and boldly and courageously proclaiming his victory. So, the prayer here is actually composed of three central elements, and it all stems from the biblical doctrine of what we call triperspectivalism. John Frame who is uh, friendly to our crowd. <laughs> he talks about tri-perspectivalism, tri meaning three, and, and he's really focusing on prophet, priest, king. Jesus is prophet, priest, king. Jesus, he's prophet, he's priest, he's king. It's not just a priestly prayer. Um, his prayer actually involves all of that, and here's why, I'll show you why. As priest, he doesn't just intercede for his people, he dies for his people. The hour has come. His perfect atonement is at hand. As prophet, he agrees with the Father and he announces with complete certitude that, that the kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in heaven. That's what prophets do. They say crazy things like that. He's given authority. He has full authority over every single person, all flesh, he says, which means that Jesus isn't the head of a sect. He's the head of the entire human race. And lastly, as king in his prayer, Jesus is fully aware that his victory will be handed over to the Father, and not just the victory itself, but the implementation of the victory in history as well. He's not just cocky and I'm going to beat Satan, sin, and death in my death, and I'm going to be raised. No, no, no. That's the victory. He's seeing to it that that victory is implemented. See, it's not a, not a prayer in which Jesus is thankful for the final judgment. It's not a prayer about that. This is a prayer in which Jesus is thankful for this eschatological reality that on the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, Christ's work of establishing his kingdom, the kingdom of God, this what we call a realized eschatology, that gives us the new heavens and the new earth, right? It's now here. It's being instituted. It's now being expanded. See, men, you see this all the time. Men, women, children, all of us, we will seek and search and find, we will look high and low for glory, right? Finding it in money, finding it in, in, in fame. And the church is prone to this too. Um, all, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but the Southern Baptist Convention has a whole lot of issues on its hands. And it's not just them. I mean, most every denomination has issues. We're talking about abuse scandals coming out. We're talking about power. We're talking about um, personalities being elevated to an unhealthy degree. 
um, that's wickedness. So men will look for glory. They'll look for glory in how many followers they have on Twitter. (laughs) They'll look for glory. We will search everywhere for it. But the last place that we ever look to find it is the bloodied cross of our Lord. Why? Well, that's because we want glory in all the wrong places. We want glory in in, in everywhere but sacrifice. We We don't see glory in service. We don't see glory in... And, and serving the person next to you. We, we don't see that. That's because we look for glory in all the big stuff. But for us, this bloodied cross, that's the grand announcement of God to the world. The giving of the Son is the glory that He prays for. That's the moment of glory. The world doesn't comprehend it, nor can it really ever comprehend it. But when we are unified under the gospel, we are set apart for the holy task of worldwide dominion. Now, our, our focus and our priorities and our concerns each day are utterly then incredulous to the world. The world doesn't believe it. How many kids do you have again? Why do you want that many? Why do you, <laughs> right? People ask, why don't you send your kids to public school? It's free. It's free. <laughs> Well, you know, people will ask you why you don't settle for immoral half measures like heartbeat pills. People will ask why you refuse to believe in modern day alchemy, which is also known as the vaccine industry. People will wonder why you would spend your Saturday at a pride parade looking at image bearers of God in the face and telling them that there is a better way. This is because we have this radical otherworldliness of which we are in hot pursuits. We are in an utter otherworldliness. In other words, we have a world which is coming, this is the kingdom coming to this world, and it's fixing it all. It's dealing with it all. Sexuality, parenting, money, all of it. That's why Jesus says, don't go out of the world. Be there. Be present. Be the light that you've been called to be. You're set apart for this task. And being marked off, consecrated by and in Christ, being sanctified in truth, means now that for all of us, including you kids, we're calling everything into question. Now that doesn't mean you backtalk your parents. But you've been consecrated and set apart. So whatever the world throws at you, whatever the church throws at you, you need to weigh it. Weigh it with the gospel. Any, any axioms or aphorisms or truth claims and absolutes that are put forth by the world, any, any attempt at brute factuality apart from the triune God, any attempt at knowledge that's submitted to you for your consideration by the world, all of that is to be suspect and it must be judged with righteousness. Kids, we are, um, we're not teaching you to just blindly respect authority. You too, Nora. I know you have no idea what I'm saying. But you are to not blindly accept authority. You are to judge authority by the righteous standard of God's Word. Because if it doesn't meet that standard, it's a worthless, pitiful authority, and it's to be rebuked, and it's to be walked away from. See, but our our otherworldliness, again, we're not retreating to a ghetto. That's where modern Christians have adopted this dualistic understanding of what Christ is saying here. We're sent into the world the same way Christ was sent into the world. That much is clear in his prayer. Which means that we're going to have to rub shoulders with people who hate Christ. We're going to have to do business with people who would prefer their obstinance. It's supposed to be this way. 
But we're here on earth in order to challenge the false pretensions of the world, not abdicate this calling and then retreat to comfort, right? We must work in the world in the same manner Christ worked in the world, which means that we are not to be proclaiming our own wisdom, our own perceived greatness, our own power. Jesus never once boasted in himself. Of all the people who could have, he didn't. He only boasted in the Father, which means that our only boast is Christ. That's it. When we participate in the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ, working through the various challenges that this world brings, we're doing so from victory, not for victory. Jesus has the victory. Jesus has won the battle. That's the power that we have, the authority we possess. But we are going forth, conquering men, conquering institutions, making them fit for service in the kingdom of God. That's the sort of holiness that we are after. Not the ooey-gooey, ishy-squishy holiness. Holiness with a backbone. Holiness with courage. See, Moses was entrusted with the name. That is the character, right, and the power of God. But now Jesus, and thus the church, we are entrusted with that same name. That is, we are entrusted with Christ's very being as he lives and moves in us, including his, his very authority and his unyielding power. And Jesus is a linchpin in all of this for a, very, for a reason. He's the dividing line for everything and everyone. And now you've been set apart. And he prays for you. Jesus prays for you. He prays, men, that you go to work tomorrow. We go to work and, and we labor for God's glory. And we make whatever we're doing fit for service in the kingdom of God. And ladies, there is a way to bake chocolate chip cookies for the kingdom of God. And then there's a way not to, because you didn't put poison in it. You did it to glorify God. You, you fixed a water heater. You accounted for things, not counting for things. For God's glory. You're making things that are sitting in front of you fit for the kingdom of God. That's the calling. So he prays for unity for us. He prays for holiness. He prays for his, his newly consecrated people, for us to be sanctified and set apart in and for God's word, which is truth. We have truth. It has been revealed to us in Christ and his word. And the way you do this, Jesus makes it clear that he prays that we would be soaked and established in the word because that's the only way the name of God is carried forward in history. So we are gospel people, we are Bible people, all the way down, straight Bible, no chaser. And listen, we'll uh, end here. The, the disciples were a very small number. They were a very small number. And sometimes we feel like we're a small number. <laughs> I mean, look at us, a bunch of renegades. But our calling is universal in scope, and that's because Christ has universal authority and power. But, but we're dealing with the God who possesses it all. He possesses it all. So why do we complain? Why do we whine? Why do we bicker? Why are we obstinate and not joyful, which is what Jesus says we should have? Perhaps we've lost this universal scope. Perhaps you've lost your purpose in that grand scheme of things. Perhaps our pro priorities have been obfuscated. Maybe we're confused. But here's the thing, and I'll leave you with this thought. The more we find ourselves apprehended and arrested by the truth of God and His Christ, the less we find ourselves standing idly by, 
wasting our lives instead of spending our lives in service to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father, we glorify you, we praise you, we thank you. You have been so good to us, and you've been good in immeasurable ways, good in ways that we don't even realize. The way you fit history together to bring us to this point, the way you've called us and set, set us apart for the task of, of, of a righteous um, holiness that has sharp blades to it. Not a, not a pietistic holiness. You've called us to a holiness that's aggressive, that's humble, but aggressive and courageous. And we thank you that your son Jesus came and prayed for us and intercedes for us daily. We thank you that we've been set apart and set apart for the task of worldwide conquest. And we know that that is not going to be achieved in the next 10 minutes. So we ask for humility and faith to believe that the next 10 minutes, the next 20 minutes, the next day, the next week, the next month, God, that we can accumulate faithfulness and service and that, God, you will make much out of those little things. So help us to be faithful by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.